0: This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur. The year is 1939. In the historical novel, Good Night from Paris, best-selling author Jane Healy has a real-life heroine, Hollywood actress Drew Layton, who, married to Frenchman Jacques Tartier, lives as an expatriate in love. But when her husband is dispatched to Brittany to work as a liaison with the British military, Drew finds herself alone with her housekeeper, adrift and heartsick, in her adopted city. With her career and fame 4,500 miles away, Drew accepts an opportunity that will change her life forever. She becomes the voice of an American in Paris before enduring Nazi occupation. In our interview, Jane explains why Drew, an American, decided to stay in Paris, although the United States wasn't yet drawn into the war, and why doing so put a target on her back at Hitler's executive order. Jane also explains what she did for on-the-ground research in France. And she divulges a bit of her current work in progress. You'll want to read the story of a woman who has everything and yet is prepared to risk everything, no matter how dangerous it gets, for her, for everyone she loves, and for everything she's fighting for. Nice to finally meet you. You too. Thank you for having me. Well, your book was a joy to read, I have to tell you. I really, oh, thank you. I was like crying part of the time and then also like scared for her a lot of the oh, time. yeah. <laughs> and it's always fun when it's a real person too.
1: Yeah, and that is the craziest part about it. I mean, this is my first foray into biographical fiction, and the fact that most of her story is true. You know, I obviously it's a work of fiction, but the main events that happened in the book happened in her real life. So, crazy. Right. Crazy. right.
0: For those who haven't read Your Wonderful End Notes or your le- wonderful book, I'm going to let you tell our listeners how the idea about writing about Drew Layton came to you and the role she played in the French Underground and by joining the French radio network Paris Mondiale, is that how it's pronounced? Mondial, I I think it's Mondial,
1: but my French is not so good, so I, I rely on my husband for that. I'll have to double check that since I'm talking about it so much now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I I uh, first was calling it Mondial as well, and then I was thinking maybe it's Mondiale, but uh, but um, yeah, I'll confirm. <laughs> good, good. Um, and the fact that she was an on-air journalist, how did that? First of all, how did you find her, and then. How did you delve into her story?
1: Yeah. So um how did I find her? Well, you know, um my last book was called The Secret Stealers. It was based on the true stories of the women of the Office of Strategic Services, the precursor to the OSS in World War II. And um I wasn't intending on writing another World War II book, but in the course of my research for that book, I came across Drew in a couple of different sources and not a huge mention of her, but like maybe a few sentences or a paragraph here and there, and um, and I was like, "Who is this American actress?" She's like a fairly well-known American actress in the 1930s. She was mostly known for um her the Charlie Chan movies. She starred in about four of the Charlie Chan movies in Hollywood. And the more I learned about her, the more I was like, "Oh, this story is bananas! I have to try to tell it. I have to pitch it to my editors because." She left Hollywood to marry the love of her life, Jacques Tartier, and um, they got married and moved to Paris in 1939, right as the war was starting. So he went off to work for the British. He had um, some ailments, so he couldn't join the French army. So he went off to work for the British, and she was not sure what she was going to do. She's living in Paris. There were some acting roles, but it would require her to leave the country. She didn't want to leave him or the country, and so... She was offered this role um, on the radio as a radio personality broadcasting um, news of what was going on in the continent of Europe to America. And she was really like the for- first voice of America. Um, they talked about that radio program. And um, so she interviewed all sorts of expatriates and and reported on what was really happening. And she did such a good job at it that the Germans started announcing on their radio stations that once they occupied France, she would be executed. And she found this out and she still kept going with it, which is also remarkable. And then from there, um, and this is the story that really um, I learned about in my past research. After Pearl Harbor, she was arrested with a number of other American female expatriates living overseas, living in and around Paris. A couple hundred of them were arrested um, and the Germans said it was in retaliation for the um, Americans arresting German women in America, which was, of course, a lie. And so they arrested all these American women. And the first place they put them as a temporary prison was a zoo outside Paris in the monkey house. And that was the story that I was like, how did I not know there, there were American women imprisoned in a monkey house during the war? That's crazy. And so then they put her in another camp. They put Drew and these women in another camp in the mountains outside of Paris with several hundred British women prisoners of war and drew faked cancer because she wanted to get out and help the resistance. So she faked cancer to the point that she got so sick, she almost killed herself because she was taking all sorts of medicines to look like she had ovarian cancer. She gets out. um, And shortly after her recovery, she starts working for the underground network, getting allied aviators out of France. And um, so every aspect of her story, that I read, the more I read, the more I was like, I can't believe I haven't heard of this woman. She was remarkable. You know, here she is. She, she marries and and jets off to Paris with with the love of her life and then ends up living this brave adventure story um, for the next few years.
0: I um, loved the fact that, um, that you were able to do some deep diving into the letters she wrote Yes. The people she actually knew there that were also female Americans who were also caught and trapped and and were also doing their bit little by little. I would say that she was a, a national hero. I, I hope she got a medal of some sort afterwards.
1: You know, she did. She got several medals from the French, Americans, British and Canadian because she rescued wow. flyers from all all of those countries. Um, So she
0: did. She received several honors after the war for her work. Wow. Thank God for that, because I was <laughs> when I was reading through it and I was thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then, yeah. of course, there's also a couple of love stories there, both Drew's love story, uh, both with Jacques and also with Jean. And then you have the love stories of people that were close to her, the people that helped her and took care of her. And I felt like you brought a lot of that to life, too. How much of that was true. Like, I, I love the story about Nadine, you know, in particular. Of course, there were other stories, too, that I felt you intertwined well with her story as to, you know, this is how, what life is like in an occupied territory, but you can still fall in love.
1: You can still fall in love. You still have to find moments of joy and hope. I think I, that was what I was trying to portray in that. And I and also the idea of found family. Um, and that a lot of that was true. She had some very close friends, um, who were like family to her. Some of the characters I had to are composites or fictionalized. Nadine was not Nadine was her maid and they became like sisters. They became very, very close. Um, and you know, in the book, I won't give away any spoilers, but there's a romance with Nadine and, um, and that was hinted at a possibility, but I kind of, um, you know, I elaborated on what might have been, um, with Nadine and this romance, um, and another um, thread that I pulled through the book is um, she loved to read. And Nadine also loved to read. So Gone with the Wind was one of their books that they just both fell in love with. Um, Jane Austen, they both loved. Um, so, so I, you know, that's kind of a... of parallel themes running through the book about Gone with the Wind and how Gone with the Wind is about people in wartime, women persevering, and then here is, you know, Drew and Nadine doing the same thing, and they really saw themselves. And a lot of French women, because it had just been translated, um, saw themselves in Gone with the Wind.
0: Yeah, when you mentioned that, I was thinking, ah, the war story, you know, they could relate to it, and you're right. Yeah. Yes, exactly. The, um, um, the other thing that I really appreciated about how you uh, structured your story was, I know there were some composites in the book, but they were so well done. For example, the German soldiers who were able to kind of look beyond the mission or, you know, the stricture of the German cruelness. And obviously, you did also show a lot of cruelty that was yes. happening to everybody who was under their siege. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about the um, German soldier who was from America and, um, and and tell us a little bit about him.
1: Yes. So when Drew um, was prisoned in the internment camp, it was called Vittel. And it was the town of Vittel, France in like the mountains. It was a spa resort town. So they imprisoned all these women in this camp um, behind barbed wire, but they were formerly hotels. And I, I should add, um, this particular camp was monitored by the Red Cross. They housed Jewish families and others later, but they were it was monitored by the Red Cross. So the British and American women, they knew that you know, they were imprisoned. They weren't thrilled about that, but they knew that they were treated relatively well compared to what was going on in some of the other camps, um, for as much as they knew. Um, But yeah, in her autobiography, which I have, she mentions um, talking to this German soldier who actually had been living in America working at a candy factory in Yonkers. And he was kind of like, I don't know what I'm doing here, like didn't really believe in the cause, knew he was on the wrong side. And so I was like, okay, that's really interesting. And, you know, if she needs help in the camp, who would she turn to? And that, so I kind of I expanded that character. Um, you know, there's a lot of darkness in war stories, obviously, but I try to balance it with some lightness as well. And I think their relationship, Drew and this, and this young soldier, I th- think that was a little bit of the lightness.
0: Right. And I know that um, he was a real person because I know when I read your end notes that she actually met him. Yes. And obviously she didn't write I assume a lot about her interaction with him but you must have picked up on some of the empathy she had for his situation because he's yes. sort of like I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time and I just have right. to keep my head down. I don't know? really
1: want to be here I want to be back in America. Yes, and that's it like and you know showing the humanity of some of these soldiers who who knew that they were on the wrong side of things um and you know he loved America and he loved Americans and, and his his reaction to seeing her and all these American women was why are you here? Like, why didn't you get out when you could? <laughs> you could be in America and safe right now. I can't believe you stayed. You know, so, so yeah, that was a uh, Demansky. Um, that that was the soldier, the officer, and um, and so yeah, I, I pulled that thread. He was based on a real person, but my version,
0: um, he plays a bigger role in Drew's life at the prison camp. Right, and also, um, the gentleman who was the mayor, who she was scared about, and I would, could understand why she'd be scared about him. It's interesting that you showed the dichotomy that a lot of the French were under. I don't want to give any spoilers away, but there was sort of a dual side to him that I truly appreciated. I think, if I remember correctly in your end notes, he might not have been real, or
1: was he? He was a composite as well. He was fictionalized, and it, but he was based on a lot of the impossible choices that the French people had to make to protect themselves, to protect their families. Some of them just had to hunker down and and, stay, you know, rather than the resist, they wanted to protect their children or protect their elderly. And so they, they made really hard, hard choices. And some of them lived to regret them after the war. You know, it's, a lot of this was not black and white. A lot of these choices for these people living in occupation. And a lot of it was just about survival.
0: The fact that she did save so many soldiers and in so many different ways, to me, really brought your book alive. I was sitting there with bated breath whenever there was a knock on the door. Right, right. You know, when she was helping pilots, she was helping anybody who crossed her path. This was a woman who I think she kind of like made the decision, I have to do whatever I have to do. My life isn't as important as what I'm doing. And I think that's a beautiful attitude toward life. And you picked up on it beautifully. Was that also in her writings?
1: It really was. It was very remarkable because, you know, I was thinking and I was talking on another interview um, before the war, she lived a pretty pampered life. And so the fact that she made these choices to help, um, you know, her strength, her feistiness, her courage, I, I mean, I think that some people in hard times, and times of war, um, rise to the occasion. I mean, look at the stories of the women in Ukraine right now. I think it's the same thing, that just doing incredibly brave, heroic things that they never thought they would have to do. And I think that was, in Drew's case, the same thing. She never... I mean, I'm sure she never imagined being in this situation, helping to, you know, rescue an allied flyer who parachuted into a tree and was injured. And now he's in enemy territory and the Germans are looking for him. And, you know, where do we hide him? How do we get him to Paris? How do we get him out of Paris uh, into another country and get him out safe? And um, yeah, she was very involved in that network that did that. And then also she was involved in just helping the families in Paris. Many families in Paris were sheltering these allied aviators in their apartments were hiding them. And so she helped provide food. She had had leased a farm out in Barbizon, the village she was living in uh, for part of the war. Um, So providing them with food and trying to find clothes for them from different villagers and also just translating for them because a lot of the families didn't speak English and most of the aviators did not speak French. So, um, you know, she did some really remarkable things.
0: Uh, I like the transitions that you made, especially when she, you know, from Paris to Barbizon, which was a totally different world
1: Yes, for her. Yeah.
0: Were you able to visit France at all to go into Barbizon? I, I would imagine if you went to France, you definitely went to Paris and probably stood yes. outside the, the building where she might have lived or where she lived. But I, would, I was wondering about a place like Barbizon.
1: Yeah. So I was really hoping because I've been to Paris and I, for the secret stealers takes place largely in Paris. So I had been to Paris in October, 2019, right before the pandemic and had done a ton of research over there. I met a historian whose um, specialty was Paris during the occupation. So that was amazing. But then for this one, I really wanted to go to Barbizon. I mean, because, I mean, you know, like when you visit a place you get the feel for it, it's a whole different sensory experience, but just pandemic and schedules I couldn't make it work but yeah I'm hoping to get there I, I mean obviously there's some amazing photographs and the village is still there of course too the villa that she rented on the main street in um, in Barbizon is available actually on Airbnb wow. so that's that's really interesting to be able to see what it's like now see look at the pictures and things like that but but no I hope to make it to Barbizon next time we go to France I was in Paris for like 48 hours in September. I met my husband there to go on. We were going on a birthday vacation in Italy. And so when we were there, we didn't have time to go to Barbizon. But I did take some little videos of like, oh, this is the market she went to. And this is the American embassy where she was friends with Ambassador Bullet, And so I did some nerdy little videos that I hope to share <laughs> in the coming
0: weeks and months. <laughs> good. I hope you do, too, because that brings, I think, the story to life. And I'm glad that you actually yes. got to stand out in front and just, you know, yes. even if you just took just a photo. I mean, it's sort of like the good thing about Paris is a lot of the buildings still look the same on the yes, outside if not the inside.
1: Yes. Even the um, you know, Cafe Le Dumago, the cafe that she was, you know, that's very popular, touristy cafe, but right. that's still
0: there and looks pretty much the same. What I was very excited for you about is the fact that you have seen some of these buildings. I, I um and I think you've walked the streets, which I love, you know, walk the streets where you live, you know, that kind of yes. thing. I always think of that song when I when I say that. But also that you know, the fact that that particular unit you could actually walk into, of course, it'll look nothing like it did. But I right. think it's great that you could, if you wanted to go back and step inside and see what it's all about.
1: Yeah. And it's so interesting because it's, it's pretty small. Um, When she described it in the autobiography and I read about it in other places, like I was trying to understand like how she hid these flyers on the, you know, this is on the main street, it's a small little village, but still on the main street. But she had there was this courtyard in the back with these two like cottage spaces in the back. that, And that's what, how she could do it. It couldn't be seen from the street. They had the courtyard so that at night that at least the flyers could go out and you know smoke some cigarettes and get some fresh air because most of the day they had to hide inside. Um, so, yeah, you know, I looked it up online and other places, but being able to see it on Airbnb, I'm like, oh, that's the layout. I get it now. OK, that's interesting.
0: Yeah, that's how it would work. And, you know, I'm sure you're like me when you're going through your actual um, structuring of a chapter. You kind of consider could this happen or possibly could not have happened. And then you kind of want to see how you can make it happen. And yes, and I think that was part of the. The joy of my discovering your writing was that you were able to bring it to life in my mind's eye. You know, if I hadn't been to the place myself, I could at least envision by the way you write what was happening in the room and how the room looked when it was happening. so oh, i I thought that was well done, and I, I just wanted to point it out because I think that's important, especially with historical fiction, historical fiction. they didn't live like us, no, you know. Everything about it was different, and we forget that. Sometimes we're, we're like, we don't even know, you know, some of the words that we currently think they would not have used, they did use. You know? Yes, yes, yeah, that's
1: right, that's right. And, like, striking that balance so that it's, the reading is accessible, but you it puts you in the place. You know, that's the hard part, right? And you're absolutely right. It's like, I always ask myself, like, if it didn't happen Could it have happened within the context of the time and place? And does it feel authentic to that time and place? You know, I think about that a lot when I'm writing. And thank you for the kind words. I I always say, like, the hardest part of writing for me is the first draft because I'm very visual. It's like a movie in my mind that I try to get on the page. And the first draft, it's never the way you want it to be. (laughs) It's not, you don't get it right first, but, like, just getting it down and trying to create that, like the sense of time and place and setting and, and things like smells and, you know, all the different senses, you know, it's hard to get that. So I, I appreciate that. Um, hopefully I pulled it off.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you certainly did, Jane. And I um, felt concern for her. I felt passion for her. I felt passion and concern for a lot of the characters you brought to life and knowing that some of them were real and knowing that, hey, this might be a line they could have said but we don't know. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Because in my mind, they said something close enough. Even the character, like a secondary character, like Claude. I mean, I could see him in my mind's eye. I knew who he was. <laughs> yes. I knew what he was, you know, his little buffoonery and his also, yes. you know.
1: He <laughs> was, his passion. His passion, <laughs> you know, he was
0: a boof. You know, I mean, this, this was a guy, everything rolled off his back. I mean, he was a fun character to have in your roster. A lot of them were fun. It was nice seeing uh, Sylvia Beach come to life. You know, I enjoyed that because I I enjoy her whole background and her whole story as well. And of course, I was like really taken with Drew, because she was not somebody who was on my radar. So having her come to life for me, and then, and of course, the first thing I did was, you know, I went through IMDB and saw all of her, you know, credits. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Um,
1: It's amazing. I, I will say too, and I'll I'll be adding more to my website and um, presentations and such. So I connected with her granddaughter and grandson. Whoa. And they, yeah, amazing. And they've been so supportive And Tracy, her granddaughter, mailed me drew scrapbooks from Hollywood from (gasps) her Hollywood days. Oh my god. Yeah just like what a treasure and so we've been scanning them and scanning them and then we're going to ship them back to Tracy but it's just so amazing you know it gives you such a perspective on that era in Hollywood. It was mostly her Hollywood days a little bit of her scraps of articles after the war when she came back because her family didn't even know if she was still alive or dead during the war because they you know lost complete contact but But yeah, that's been really remarkable and special um, to be able to see those and see her letters and
0: her telegrams and all sorts of cool stuff. I bet. I bet. So which brings me to my next question. Is that going to be your next novel or what are you thinking about for your next novel?
1: Oh, thank you for asking. So yeah, I, I've been thinking about a lot of things the past six months. And I finally um, told my husband, like, I got to stop thinking and talking about it and actually start writing, you know, like that might be helpful. And, um, and and sometimes I find if I talk about it too much, I told him I like ruins my mojo, you know what I mean? So I, I'm working on a new project. I'm kind of superstitious, but I will say like, I'm going to take a step away from World War Two, but not too far away from World War Two era. So
0: Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. I would guess that maybe Hollywood has a little play in it. <laughs>
1: maybe. We'll maybe. Yeah. Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> well, I hope others will pick up your book. I think it's fabulous. I'm
1: shouting it's from
0: the rooftops. And I just know that it's the kind of book that brings people closer to the real deal of what trauma and bravery was happening in a period that... Lately, we haven't been overlooking World War II in our fiction. Right. Yes. But that element of feet on the ground, as Drew had, you did a beautiful job in bringing her back to life for the rest of us.
1: Oh, thank you so much for the kind words, Josie, and and your support. I love being on your podcast and talking about it and sharing her story with the world. You know, it just came out last week, but I'm really excited um, for people to discover it. So I appreciate you having me on
0: as you should be. It is a fabulous, <laughs> fabulous book. Thank you. <laughs> Good night from Paris is in bookstores now. This is Josie Brown with author Provocateur.